I V M. Raja di Raja, Raja Mataraja, Raja Kapila, Beta Sumha Birudang, Beka Nabi Raja Sekara. Is it true that the Indian civilization was a peaceful one that never attempted to conquer anyone beyond the Indian subcontinent? Did Indian and Chinese courts establish diplomatic relations as early as the 10th century? How did trade transform coastal cities in medieval India? All this and more on today's episode of the Pragati Podcast. Hi, this is the Pragati Podcast and we are your hosts Pavan Srinath and Hamsini Hariharan. Every week on the show we discuss various topics in economics, politics and international affairs. This week on the show we go back to one of the richest and easily overlooked dynasties in India, the Cholas. The Cholas have a long and glorious history that goes back to the Sangam era, but we are focusing on the medieval Chola dynasty which stretched across the entire Coromandel coast, traded with merchants around the world and even managed to conquer areas in Southeast Asia. To help us jog our memories is our guest on the show today, Devi Ashodran. She's the author of Empire, a novel of historical fiction based in the 11th century during the peak of Chola power. Hi Devi, welcome to the show. Hi, it's really nice to be here, Hamsini. Uh so you worked on the book The Empire which is the newest and possibly the only work of historical fiction based on the Cholas. Uh so when we think in English, yeah. In English, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh so when we think of the 11th century we know of, you know, Mohammad Ghazni looting North India, but we don't hear of what's happening in South India to an extent. Can you just give us some background to where you'd set your book? Okay um I agree with you about what you said about our history it is a little north indian centric um I remember that when we did uh, study south indian history I think it was devoted to around half a page with just a mention of the various kingdoms yeah. and that was about it um what I found really interesting about the cholas was that um they were uh, one of the only maritime empires emerging from india um they were very outward looking in terms of their trade as well as their conquests i think they were the only indian kingdom that actually went aggressively outside the indian borders and conquered various territories and uh, these aspects were very fascinating to me in terms of how they are based in our indian history and how they affect the culture of the kingdom and the social you know forces that are that are present within the kingdom so for example while um the north indian kingdoms as well as the vijayanagar empire that came later were much more feudal i think the fact that um the cholas were so trade oriented and had so many foreign settlers in their kingdom really impacted how the social forces played out as well so um this the caste structure was a little more fluid in terms of whether the shudras were actually considered untouchable for mm-hmm. example and um who were the wealthy and respected uh, communities within the particular kingdom and um the peak of this period was during the periods of raja raja chola um who i think has been talked about fairly in tamil history and culture because of the uh, epic punian selvan which is set during his particular period and is much beloved by the tamil people and um as well as his son rajendra chola which is when the empire sort of peaked in terms of the actual territory that it controlled punian selvan which devi mentioned is a magnum opus possibly one of the most famous stories in Tamil literature. It's based on historical figures from the Cholan era of the 10th century, particularly Rajaraja Chola. Under his son Rajendra Chola, the empire expanded even more than before. 
under Rajendra Chola, the kingdom encompassed the whole of South India as well as the eastern coast in terms of uh, kings who had pledged their allegiance to the Cholas as well. They captured Sri Lanka, Maldives, as well as large parts of Southeast Asia, including modern-day Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, as well as southern Thailand. And um, what I find interesting is the fact that even though um, this was a king who was um, very focused on building a naval empire and an empire that was powerful on trade, when he did go and conquer these areas, um, they did plunder these regions, the Cholas. Mm-hmm. They, were, they had a fairly aggressive army, but um, they didn't establish the sort of imperialist extractive relationships that you see the British Empire having established several hundred years later, for example. So it's a I found the kingdom as a whole like an extremely interesting study both socially and culturally as well besides just the impact they had on our history yeah i can understand where you're coming from it sounds so cosmopolitan right exactly yeah i Uh, really enjoyed that part of it yeah and uh so you were talking about the conquest of the sri vijayas right Mm -hmm. uh that they went to uh, southeast asia so this would be modern day sumatra indonesia yeah 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 so uh but why would they go to conquer uh something that's far off because something that we say in indian history is that you know the indian civilization is the only one that's never gone out to conquer any other territory <laughs> yeah i think that is definitely a misreading of our history in that that we weren't conquerors um there were a couple of interesting forces that were driving chola decisions to actually conquer outside territories during this time so one came from the middle east um this was around the time when the abbasid uh, empire in baghdad was in decline and the fatimids of egypt were sort of rising and the fatimids were unlike the abbasids a very seafaring sort of uh, empire and um, this was around the time in the middle of the 10th century when it was a gujarat ports that were doing extremely well due to trade with the arabs and so on when the fatimids came to power however they shifted their focus to the south indian um, uh, ports the malabar mm. ports and that was primarily because they were short on timber for ship building ah. and these malabar ports were great exporters of timber mm. so they used to like favor the malabar ports to trade mainly with them and so there was a wealth of trade coming from the middle east mm. um on the east asia side and the china side this was around the time that the song dynasty was on the rise so um the song emperor unlike his predecessors was very focused on naval trade mm. so the thing that he did in his first year of rule itself was that he sent out four missions mm. across south and southeast asia essentially asking kingdoms to come trade with us um, is this one of the missions were jengi the uh, chinese that came much later okay. that was after the were really well established as a mm. powerful naval trading power this was much earlier on and um once they sent out the four missions um these uh, the essentially the southern and the southeast asian kingdoms knew that china was suddenly extremely interested and more open to trade sri vijayans were in fact the first to respond they sent back mission in the next year itself mm. the cholas under rajaraja sent a mission in 1015 mm. uh, with a lot of gifts for the song emperor so everyone was very eager to do trade with them and the king in china had established a bureau of licensed trade okay. which was essentially a state monopoly they would mm. buy foreign goods and they would sell it inside china the profit margins were huge mm. so they had a very strong interest in establishing a strong naval base and trading and so on and um, so these two forces were essentially making trade extremely lucrative for kingdoms and the cholas were highly aware of that which is why they wanted to control the naval trade going through mm. the indian ports they conquered south india um, they had this war with the cheras that was a naval fight the cheras at that time were considered the preeminent naval power mm. but rajaraja fought 
fought a war with them in the Kundalai Sarai, which is now um, the Virinjam port yeah, in yeah, South India, port, yeah. which is um, incidentally being developed by the Adanis right mm. now. And um, so once he conquered the coastline and after Rajendra managed to control the whole of the East Coast in Sri Lanka, they essentially had a monopoly over the sea trade and this brought them a whole lot of wealth. So I think the shifts that were happening in the Middle East and China were driving the importance of naval trade during this time. And Srivijaya started becoming a thorn in Rajendra Chola's um, skin because um, one, their position allowed them to tax um, ships that were traveling to China very easily. Okay. If they ever wanted to like have a stopover mm. in that region, apparently the money, the duties that the officials levied were extremely high. Okay. The other problem was a piracy problem that seemed to be happening around the Srivijaya coast. Mm. And um, Rajinder Chola, I believe, was somewhat suspicious that the Pirates were in cahoots with the Srivijaya king and whatever ships they plundered, some of the wealth would, you know, go to mm. the king as well. So um, it seemed logical to him to like conquer the Srivijayas and establish himself as one of the preeminent mm. naval powers in that region who could trade with China in, you know, um, more aggressively than anybody else. Yeah, but even when conquering, they just plundered and then they came back. Yeah, right? exactly. They didn't s set up their establishments or institutions or anything like that. Yeah, which I found quite interesting because they had merchant guilds present mm. in that region. And um, uh, apparently historians say that the Pallavas who came before them mm. had like um, fortified merchant guilds in East Asia who would, you know, who were a little more extractive in terms of controlling the society and getting taxes and paying it back to the king in South India. But uh, the Cholas didn't seem to have established anything like that. In fact, um, there is evidence that the Srivijayas revived very quickly after mm. the conquest in 1025 that Rajendra Chola did, because in 1033, the Srivijayans sent another mission to China, ah. so, you know, with gifts and so on. So they seem to have, been, have recovered quite well and been totally fine. Yeah, I think this is interesting in a foreign policy point of view mm -hmm. because uh, there was this uh, famous strategist called Alfred Theo Mahan mm -hmm. who uh, in the 1900s said that, you know, uh, if you conquer... Uh, if you command your sea lanes of commerce, mm -hmm. then that's what will determine your power as a country, as a nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that Cholas did long before everyone else. They Absolutely. recognized what sea lanes of commerce were important. Yeah. Uh, and it, from a foreign policy point of view, this means that the Indians and the Chinese had relations that went back to the 11th century. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the Srivijans tried very hard to like um, lower the estimation of the Cholas in the Chinese court. They called them the barbarians of the south and so on and so forth to the Chinese court. This has been recorded in some of the Song Chinese documents. But I think despite that, um, at least during the Rajaraja and Rajendra Chola period, there was some amount of recognition given to them as an independent empire. Although it was very hard, I think, for the Chinese also to establish how big an empire um, the Cholas actually were considering the distances mm -hmm. and all that involved. But the relationships were definitely there. In fact, um, related to your point, the relationships became, in fact, strongly naval during this period because I believe around 1023 or so, mm -hmm. around a couple of years before the Cholas invaded Srivijaya, um, the Chinese had asked um, its um, trade partner countries to trade more via the uh, silk route of the sea rather than silk route of the land because oh the land was harder to guard. Mm -hmm. They had um, the fortifications of it were a lot more difficult mm -hmm. and so on. So they considered the sea a much more viable option for trade. So the relationships were fairly well established. Although um, I have to say that 
partly because of revision interference and partly because of distance the cholas weren't able to make as much headway into the chinese court in terms of the recognition and respect um, mm-hmm. they got vis-a-vis you know other kingdoms closer to it fair enough something that uh, also piqued my interest when i was reading empire is uh, the cosmopolitan nature of all the towns that you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, so which got me wondering to uh, what does your research say about how um, cities or towns or just urban centers function during this period okay um there were a few interesting references um i think i had uh, one challenge that i faced was um the formal documents which were the copper plates versus the informal documents which are the poetry and the stories mm-hmm. and descriptions by travelers and so on of the of the chola empire so um one is um, the silla padikaram for example mm-hmm. has beautiful descriptions of the towns of uh, in southern tamil nadu during that time mm-hmm. so they mentioned for example these large uh, bazaar markets that you know are that is selling everything under the sun um from pearls to spices to like you know interesting foods mm-hmm. so uh, we do know that there were very vibrant street markets around and um, there are descriptions from travelers of people of all kinds of skin colors and mm-hmm. nationalities wandering around the street because what would essentially happen is that merchants arab merchants for example would arrive to nagapatnam and have to settle there and wait for their ships to return mm. with their traded goods and so on so during that time they would essentially settle there there were um, apparently large roman quarters in nagapatnam where some roman merchants had actually settled there permanently married into the local population and so on um, there is one description that i found of a multi storied building which was filled with um, greek merchants who had essentially like settled there and um, people would talk about the sounds of parties emanating from that building when you pass by the street so there are some lovely descriptions that give you a sense of what the place was like fairly lively um fairly dynamic with a lot of um, with a floating population that came in and out mm. kind of thing which i found extremely interesting um in the case of um researching um these kind of local um towns i found the poetry very useful because um they there was a culture of wandering poets during that time right oral poets were very well respected in the yeah, chola yeah. courts and beautiful verses were rewarded with feasts mm. and money and so on um there was one a chola king that reportedly used to roll down a golden ball um oh, wow. down the uh, floor of the court whenever mm. the poet recited a poem that he particularly liked and um, so these details are uh, the details from the poetry is quite lovely and you get a sense of uh, of a fairly like decentralized administration the cholas were not really centralized like the empires that came later so the villages tend to like govern themselves mm-hmm. largely and um, when the chola king did actually you know hear cases of of crime and you know mm-hmm. disputes and so on and so forth largely the punishments were monetary so even in the cases of murder very often mm. the king would say you have to donate enough money to the temple to keep this lamp lit forever uh-huh. so um it was more of a benign administration mm. than an aggressively punitive one and um what was interesting that i found um when i read about how these um towns and cities were run was that uh they had a very large bureaucracy much mm. larger than the kingdoms that came before mm. and the audit functions of this bureaucracy were very significant Could land records yeah. land records were extremely extensively kept um they were very well documented there were regular visits by officials to local areas to monitor what people said were um were crop outputs and so on and um 
while the landowner gentry was grew wealthy and extremely mm. powerful there was still a balancing act between the state and these particular classes mm. in terms of the taxes actually extracted from them so you get a sense of largely a well run administration and what and a fairly modern city mm. in that sense uh, because you brought up merchants and uh, i'm guessing there were also priests and there were also nobles so how did the different classes interact and function at that point in time well um i do know that the merchants were fairly senior in the hierarchy simply because i believe i think that the wealth that came through trade tended to outweigh a little bit the wealth that came via agriculture and land mm. while kaveri delta was extremely fertile um the merchants were a extremely powerful because of the trade income b they had very close relationships with the palace uh, with the kings and so on so for example um the warehouses that they used to um set up and protect were essentially heavily guarded mm. and um they tended to provide um any town that had large numbers of warehouses in its premises the merchants then had the authority to collect taxes from the people ah. so that itself gives them a administrative slash commerce function which make them a fairly powerful community in and of themselves and the fact that they have their own army which is guarding them and guarding um guarding the goods that they are transporting also makes them powerful as well in the eyes of both the palaces as well as in the eyes of the local people so i think they were a fairly significant class and because they used to donate a fair amount of money to the temples as well that also raised the estimation in the eyes of the chola society um you do see shifts in terms of um who is considered powerful and respectable across different periods um i had paid close attention for example for uh, in terms of how the women were treated hmm. and it is during the rajaraja and rajendra chola period which is the wealthiest times that you see the maximum number of donations by women hmm. uh, going into temples not just women from the palaces but uh, women considered as noble women even hmm. wives of blacksmiths wives of landowners and so on the landowners and the cultivators were the wealthiest and this is why when we were talking about caste right the yeah. shudra yeah. thing came up because um even though you might be a lower caste hmm. if you were economically wealthy you still had a hmm. position in society that was fairly mid middling hmm. it was you weren't necessarily considered untouchable in that hmm. sense um so besides the landowners the professional uh, communities like blacksmiths ironsmiths and so on they were somewhat lower in the hierarchy just because of the income angle to it there was less money to be hmm. earned hmm. in these kind of um uh situation so i would say you would see the merchants especially the trading merchants with trade relationships uh, established internationally then probably the landowners and mm. the landowning caste and the cultivating caste and then these um professional sort of uh, guilds like the blacksmiths and so on that would be the hierarchy of the cholas from my understanding so the entire backdrop of this seems to be provided by trade because that's what's driving uh, the prosperity of the churan empire uh, how did it function did uh, the churan empire also have licenses like the song dynasty um that's an interesting question i did find descriptions of duties and um uh, what do you call these um uh, taxes and different amounts of uh, money being levied on these different merchants when they came in with their ships when they came into a city to trade when they uh, tried to store their goods in a particular warehouse and so on but i wasn't able to understand the complete setup of how these particular 
naval people were essentially mm. taxed and so on because i've been able to find small details in different essays but i haven't got a big picture mm. of it as yet but yes they did pay a fair amount of uh, coin to the palace treasury for sure and um, yeah so that was a significant amount of revenue for the king was that your question yeah yeah okay. and also what did they trade essentially well there was a fair amount of stuff um pearls were a big export for the cholas especially after they gained control of the gulf of munar and they got a monopoly over that whole pearl trade um cotton was a big deal for a lot of the exports the chinese for example bought cotton for um soldier uniforms white cotton because most of these soldiers were stationed in very dry hot conditions so white cotton imported from india was a much prized commodity to the extent that you could even use it in lieu of cash it was considered an wow. a, a accepted form of like uh, butter yeah and um, um the particular kind of prints in cotton that evolved during this time mm-hmm. which were imported from gujarat to the chola ports and then exported out to asia um these prints were extremely unusual and therefore extremely prized especially in southeast asia there was for example patterns of interlocking circles mm-hmm. which were worn only by the royalty in southeast asia um and um there were these um other patterns like four pointed stars mm-hmm. um very particular flower motifs there was a very popular design um which involved a god emerging out of a lotus mm. which became a very um popular fashionable garment among the royalty during that particular period of time during rajendra chola's period and these designs were unusual enough that they became um both their provenance and it was like the designer clothing yeah, to be yeah. i guess right they're extremely striking mm. they're distinctive because they're not being reproduced in the local area they're mm. being sold in and um so cotton was a big deal silk i'm guessing was a big deal silk chinese silk was also mm. very but yeah silk um, there was i believe frankincense sandalwood mm. pepper and the usual yeah, spices, the spices yeah and all that so yeah mm. okay so just turning to the book uh so your protagonist aramis is this feisty young greek girl mm-hmm. um who's uh, a a migrant in a sense right she's alien to the situation did you place yourself as a migrant in a setting uh, how did you decide to uh, choose where to place aramis Um it started out with a detail that I had read that described um the use of Greek bodyguards in palaces and around kings during this particular period. The Pandyan king it was very popular with the Pandyas. Um there are, there is anecdotal evidence that um the Greeks were present in um Chola palaces as well in different professions and so on. And um so my idea here was you have somebody that who's a complete outsider in a kingdom that despite the amount of trade would otherwise be fairly homogeneous in mm. terms of um the palace culture mm. and the local culture and so on and we do know that um i mean just seeing how how it is in the modern day no matter how so called integrated societies are there is a sense of migrants being somewhat out of place and the politics around migrants at least right now is mm. extremely fraught both in europe as well as in us right the political debates around right now that is happening is who is a true american who is mm. a true european who is a true british and mm. so much of the politics right now is being driven by that this debate is also valid when we talk about who is a true indian Sunil Kirnani who wrote the book The Idea of India said that there can never be a single idea of an Indian or Indianness and in the modern world our roots mix and merge within cultural and social contexts 
the advantages of being a migrant, both in a fictional and a real life context, is that it allows you to figure out how structures work, how institutions work. Yeah, that's a nice observation because you're watching alongside her basically mm. in terms of how this culture is like yeah. and her homesickness. Um, she's homesick. You're an, you're completely alien to this. So you're learning something via her emotions as well as her perspective on things. Emotions at the end of the day are universal. Um, and that's why maybe we relate to times of the Choras and we'd like to think of times of splendor when, when you're at the peak of your dynasty or your civilization. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of nostalgia in this. It is true because it was one of the preeminent empires mm-hmm. of the time. And you're right about the fact that a lot of it is relatable in terms of the way people talk and the emotions that they express and so on. Which is why in the book, at least, I didn't go too much into the hierarchies of the society mm-hmm. because I thought that would break the spell a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's instead approach it in the form of interpersonal relationships and, you know, how things play out in that way. Because I think no matter how hierarchical a society is, finally a lot of decisions come down to that for Mm -hmm. at least, you know, these kind of how things play out in courts, how things play out Mm -hmm. in palaces and so on. All right. Okay. I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was great fun. That's it for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. You should check out Devi Ashodaran's book, Empire. And we also have some other readings on the thinkpragati.com page of this podcast episode. If you have any questions or comments, write into podcast at thinkpragati.com and we'll answer them in later episodes. We're also on Twitter as Zeus is Dead and Hamsini H. You can listen to the Pragati podcast on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcast fix from. We'll be back next week. As you can see, we have a podcast listener in his natural habitat. Millions of years of evolution have led him to this point. He's on his way to work and listening to podcasts makes his miserable day better. He will now head to work and use all his knowledge to communicate with other colleagues and possibly future mates. You can find more of his species on ivmpodcasts.com your one-stop destination where you can check out all the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.